0: morning, everybody. Today's Bible reading is from Amos 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, and it's on, in the Red Bibles, it's on page 917. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord roars from Zion, And thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael that will consume the fortresses of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gates of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds a scepter in Beth Eden. And the people of Aram will go into exile in Kerr, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captives, whole communities, and sold them to Edom, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the Scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities captive, whole communities of captives to Edom. Disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not relent. Because he pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire on Timon that will consume the fortresses of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says For three sins of Ammon even for four I will not relent Because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders I will send fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the on the day of battle amid violent winds on the stormy day her kings will go into exile he and his officials together says the Lord This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent. Because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king, I will send fire on Moab that will consume her fortresses at Kirioth. Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord.
1: Thanks, Jade. Well, this morning we, uh, we begin a new series, new series in Amos, and a uh, fascinating little book in the Old Testament. And we're going to be here for seven weeks. So I thought I'd begin by giving you a little bit of background, a bit of introduction to what Amos is all about. One good thing about Amos is you actually get a great little introduction in the first couple of verses. So let's allow Amos to introduce his own book. The first verse says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. This is a really helpful opening for placing Amos, this this, uh, incredible person, in time. Now there's a reference to an earthquake. There's a bit of speculation about which earthquake that referred to. Um, There's various theories there. But those two kings mentioned give us a real way of pinpointing when Amos was written and when Amos spoke. The fact there's two kings as well is a reminder for us straight off the bat that this is a time in Israel's history when the nation was divided. In ancient Israel, between north and south, there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And both these two kings listed here had long and stable reigns. Jeroboam reigned for 41 years, Uzziah for 52, and they overlapped a lot. They almost overlapped exactly exactly. So the best we can really say about Amos is that he was active in the first half of the 8th century BC, somewhere between 791 and 753, which is admittedly a large range. He might have been even giving his prophecies over a number of decades. We also learn a little bit about Amos himself. We learn that he was a shepherd. Uh, A bit later in the book, we also learn that he worked in an orchard as well. So he was a land worker. And he's from Tekoa, a very small town in the south in Judah, That map is not going to be helpful at all, really, is it? But it's very close. I can see it's just, just below Bethlehem. So it's in the south, the kingdom of Judah. So he's a southerner. He's a man of the south, but his ministry is to the north, to the northern kingdom of Israel. He's a Judah guy, but he's speaking to Israel. And he's called to be a prophet by God, to give God's word during this particular time in Israel's history. What was this time like what were things like in israel and judah back then well both king jeroboam ii in the north and king uzziah in the south in judah uh, had long stable peace, peaceful and even quite prosperous reigns this was a this was boom time for israel and judah now these weren't particularly good kings in god's eyes uh uzziah was kind of a mixed bag jeroboam was quite evil but they had a lot of success in terms of military expansion. They they almost grew their kingdoms back to the, the largest point that it was during David and Solomon's time. But because of all this prosperity and success, there arose in these nations at this time a wealthy upper class who tended to abuse their wealth and power. So what is the message? What's the message God would have for his people during this time? Uh, and particularly for the northern kingdom. Well, the good news is the second verse gives us a really good summary of the message. We read, He said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem, the pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. This is a really important introduction as we consider the book of Amos here. The Lord roars is the phrasing. This is a picture that's being presented here of God as a lion. Facing the north from the south. He's roaring from Zion, Jerusalem, the capital in the south. But he's roaring towards the north. The message says the top of Carmel with us. Carmel was a location in the north. The lion roars from south to north. And this isn't a friendly roar. Let's just be clear about this. this isn't a lion saying hello. It says the land will dry up under the word of the Lord. It's, it's almost more like a dragon's roar with fire coming out. A roar of judgment. In fact, that place mentioned, Carmel. I think I've got a picture of it. It actually means uh, the the orchard or the fertile land. That's what the word means. Carmel was famous in the north for being a place that was lush, even when it was drought everywhere else. You could at least, you could always get water and some food in Carmel. So when it says the top of Carmel withers, it means even Carmel, even lush Carmel is going to be dried up. It's going to be parched. That's how significant God's judgment is going to be desolation will cover the whole land and if you're wondering, yes, even Carmel. hope that's a helpful introduction to Amos. This is, this is the message we'll look at for a few weeks. God calls Amos, this farmer from the south, to be his prophet to the north during a time of peace and prosperity in the rich early 700s BC and he's delivering this message of judgment to the north that will be devastating for the people. Now it's interesting in Amos, so far that's pretty clear I think but then The very next verse, there's a twist. There's a twist in Amos. See, if you're a person in Israel, you're up there, maybe gathered, maybe Amos is on a platform starting to give his message, you'd be thinking, all right, he's about to speak God's words of judgment to Israel. That's the whole point, isn't it? That's the the point of Amos, and really it is. The roar of the Lord, they're thinking, let's hear it. What's this accusation God's got? What's the punishment? Have a listen to what comes next. It says... This is what the Lord says. Can I go to the next slide, please, Casey? This is what the Lord says. For, th- for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. See, rather than focusing on Israel, that northern kingdom of God's people, God's judgment begins with Damascus. That's a foreign city outside of Israel and Judah. And then over the next chapter, he addresses five more foreign nations a total of six nations that all surround you can see them all there they all surround the kingdoms of Israel and Judah and as you read each judgment against these six nations in chapter one and just the start of chapter two they each begin the same this is what the Lord says for three sins of this nation even for four I will not relent and then there's a reason for the judgment God says because because they did this horrible thing And then the punishment, God says, I will, I will do this to them. It's a particularly curious thing about Amos. It begins not with judgment against Israel, which is the purpose of Amos as a whole, but on these six foreign nations and cities. What is going on? Why do we have this in Amos? Well, I think there's two likely reasons. In a literary form, there is a sense in which God is lulling Israel into a false sense of security. They were bracing themselves for a word of judgment. The Lord roars. They thought, all right, let's hear it. What's the bad news? And then, it's okay. It's these foreign nations that are under God's microscope. They would have been thinking, fantastic. This is great news. They would have been relaxing and thinking, "Yeah. yeah, Damascus, absolutely. Tyre, what a mess. You know what? It's really good to hear God has got something planned for those wicked nations. But God's using these judgments. He's building up. He's using them as a precursor for a much more significant word of judgment on Israel, which will occupy most of the book. But the other reason, I think, it's a reminder to us uh, and to Israel that God is king of the whole world. And this is always a good reminder. God sees sin outside his people, and God will judge it. And that's really the big message from Amos 1. God will bring justice upon the nations for their crimes. God will bring justice upon the nations for their crimes. And I want to go through God's um, judgment here, not nation by nation, but I want to look at it in three parts. What, what they're guilty of, what were the crimes that God's so worked up about, how God sees them, and what's the punishment that he's planning. So we'll just work through that. Firstly, let's look at what these nations have done. In short, all these nations are guilty of war crimes. That's really what it's about. And it's probably summaries, the statements we get in Amos, of maybe even a couple hundred years of evil practice, and violence let's have a look at these accusations damascus it says threshed gilead with sledges having iron teeth gilead's a part of israel and the sledges with iron teeth is a reference to kind of weapons of war warmongering gaza took captive whole communities and sold them to edom that's probably a reference to taking slaves from israel across to neighboring edom tyre sold whole communities of captives to edom so Edom's receiving quite a few slaves through this disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. There's there's a reference there with that added accusation of breaking some kind of treaty with the nation they pillaged. We read that Edom pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land. His anger raged continually. His fury flamed unchecked. Edom was actually considered to be a brother nation to Israel. So this is about attacking Israel and killing the women in the land. Ammon ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders again an attack on israel and women are killed for purely the reason of gaining land and moab it says burn to ashes the bones of edom's king it's a reference to violence and mistreatment of the dead what do we learn from these war crimes why is god going through this list in such detail well actually what we learn here is that god cares about war god cares about war war causes deep suffering to many people, and this, this really breaks God's heart. We can be very confident as well that these six nations here, these were not uh, you know, poor downtrodden nations that were acting in self-defense. No, these were acts of war, intentional acts of war to extend borders, to sell people as slaves. There's a focus on the pain and death of women in some of these as well, who were more vulnerable at that time. And there's references to breaking treaties, being unfaithful in previous agreements with allies and other nations. Now, this is probably not a big surprise, is it? I think. We know this is the kind of thing that God abhors. Violence and the causing of pain. We know Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The picture of God's restored kingdom, in fact, is one of peace. We have these wonderful images. In Micah, we have this, this verse, another prophet, of God's promised peace. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore. I think we know this, don't we? we? We know God wants peace to reign. But I know certainly for myself, sometimes when I think of sin, my, my thoughts can be a lot smaller. I can think of, of personal sin or individual sins that we might um, succumb to, temptations we might succumb to. But I don't always turn my eyes to the fact that war and the acts of war can be sin as well. It's a good reminder, I think, that God cares about this kind of thing today. God hates violence today. And we see these kind of things today as well, don't we? The, I think the war in Ukraine, that's, I mean, it's an ongoing but a good example. Russia attacked Ukraine essentially to, to grow in size, to take land. We read about the condemnation of Ammon today in Amos chapter 1 because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. Now, can't give specifics, but I'm confident many women, many many pregnant women have suffered in Ukraine over the last 18 months as Russia seeks to extend its borders. It's very similar to the condemnation of Ammon. There's obviously, as I mentioned before, the war between Israel and Hamas that's taking place right now, and, and the world is watching as this unfolds. We don't know how it's going to unfold, but we certainly can say very clearly that the attack by Hamas on civilians, killing some, capturing others, This is the kind of thing that God hates. These are acts of war. A month ago, I was reading about the assassination. This is a bit more specific, but you might have seen this in the paper, of a Sikh Canadian uh, from India. This man was a key spokesperson for Sikh rights, possibly Sikh independence in India. And according to Canadian government and their sort of intelligence agencies, this man was killed under orders from the Indian government. If that's correct, that's a a Canadian citizen killed in Canada by a foreign government. Now, India denies the claims, Canada and India are sort of in this ongoing dispute. But if it's true, this is also the kind of thing God hates. It's like breaking a treaty of brotherhood, an agreement between nations. They won't commit crimes in each other's nations. God abhors this kind of thing. There's other examples too. I haven't even talked about the treatment of the Rohingya in Myanmar or the Uyghurs in Western China, the economic slavery of prostitutes or sweatshop workers in many poor nations. God abhors all these crimes. Which leads to the next thing. How God sees this. How God sees these war crimes. In each case, the citation begins with the same pattern. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. And it goes on. This is a bit of a classic uh, Hebrew literary pattern. For three, dot, 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 even for four. It's, it's almost as if the author had three things in mind and then at the last moment, oh, they thought of a fourth thing and penned it down. But what we see that's really important here is God sees these things as sins. Sins being the word the Bible uses for any action or going against God's ways. Now, I reckon this is really interesting because these nations, they don't know God, do they? These are foreign nations. This is not Israel and Judah. See, it feels natural to talk about God's people sinning against him, failing to keep his laws and decrees, failing to love as God calls us to love. But you might think, these nations, how is this sin? They don't even know God. They don't even know the laws they're breaking. But God declares through Amos, doesn't he? This is still sin. This is still disobedience to God's way. And this reminds us of a couple of important things. Firstly, as I said before, God is ruler of the whole world. He's ruler of the whole world. His standards are universal. Just because Damascus or Tyre didn't know God specifically condemned those actions, it doesn't make them any less sinful. Evil is still evil. God's standards are universal. This is God's world. And evil in God's world is sin. And the second thing we see is that God's justice is not limited to his own people either. That phrase, it's a pretty heavy phrase you read in Amos. Again and again, he will not relent. Six times, he will not relent. God will judge sin and he's not going to let them off the hook just because they don't know God. God will judge sin, whatever it is, whoever commits it. Now, if all of this seems pretty heavy and, uh, and dark and pretty tough, um, you might be thinking... This feels a bit unfair. This feels a bit unfair, perhaps. How are these nations to know this behaviour was against God's way? How can they be punished, you know, for breaking laws they've never read? It just sort of feels a bit unjust and unfair. And look, I feel that way sometimes, but let me encourage you to think of it from a slightly different perspective. Have, Have a thought for those people who have been hurt and killed because of the war crimes of the nations to have a think about the people of Gilead who were attacked and killed. Think about the communities who were taken off in slavery, in chains to a foreign country. To consider the women who were killed. See, when I I think about it, I'm actually glad that God is like this. I'm glad that God hates war and violence and treachery and exploitation and slavery. I am glad that when God sees this kind of thing, he identifies it as sin and evil and prepares his judgment. I'm glad that abusers and warmongers and exploiters, even if they manage to evade, you know, fair justice in their lifetimes, will never evade God's right and fair judgment. Really, it's confronting, but it's also comforting in a strange way. It means we can have clarity that justice will be done. It means right now, just like in Amos's day, the world is the Lord's. He will judge the sin and the evil and take place. People like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping, people like the Indian government or the Myanmar military or Hamas terrorists or pimps or sweatshop owners, they will be under the microscope, won't they, for their sin and evil. They will need to face the king of this world to answer for their crimes. It's heavy, but I want to suggest in the end, justice is also good news. Well, the last part of our passage is about what the punishment will be like. Let me just go through these briefly. For all six nations, the first punishment is the same. Amos says God will send fire on the house of that nation and it will consume its fortresses. So all six of them are going to get that initial punishment, which is violent destruction of the nation and the end of its power. But for, for four of the nations, they also get there's some other punishment lined up. So for Damascus, we read God will break down the gate of Damascus, destroy the king who's in the Valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth Eden. It's a picture of a raid on Damascus, on the capital, and killing of the king. For Gaza, we see God will also destroy the king of Ashdod, the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. He will turn his hand against Ekron and the last of the Philistines will die. Like Damascus, there'll be an end to the king of Gaza and a picture of all the Philistines being killed. For Ammon, we read that her king will go into exile. He and his officials together, that's fairly easy to follow, um, the end of the king and his leaders. And then for Moab, it says Moab will go down in great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. God will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him. Again, there's some more detail about how that nation will end and the death of their leadership. If I was going to summarize it, I would say God's punishment will be the destruction of all six nations and for four of these at least, the specific death of their rulers. So maybe a natural question as we read this passage, you know, about 2,700 years in the future. Did this happen? Did this happen? Well, absolutely. There is a reason why none of these six nations are nations today. These nations were destroyed. They all came to an end and have been replaced by other powers, other nations, other rulers. Now, the cynic here might say, well, that's all very well and good, Paul. But that's got nothing to do with God, really. That's, it's not like God came in with angels and just sort of swept these nations away and killed their kings. It's just the rise and fall of nations. That happens all the time. It's like why we don't have the Prussian Empire today or the Roman Empire or Czechoslovakia. Kingdoms rise and fall, nations change, boundaries change. That's not the hand of God, surely bringing about specific punishment. But that's exactly what it is. That's how God's judgment takes place. God's judgment on nations works itself out as the rise and fall of powers. God's judgment on nations works itself out in history as kingdoms come and kingdoms go. In Psalm 47, we read this about God's power. It says, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. A bit later in Amos itself, actually, we read about how God brings his judgment. Yes, God doesn't tend to bring in armies of angels all the time. But his practice is to use other nations as his tools to bring about his purposes. You see there in Amos chapter 6, the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. This is how God works out his judgment on nations. And, And it's still true today. God is still in control of the nations, making them rise and fall as he wills. I think one sort of curious thing I notice in the media, and this, this is regardless of what sort of media you consume, um, is this sort of very common narrative that the world is out of control. The world is out of control. You might see this. Some people point to new social norms as evidence the world is out of control. Others will point to the rise of you know, authoritarian governments. That's evidence the world is out of control. But for all who trust in God, we know this is not true. The world is not out of control because God is in control. God God is always in control and is today. Things can seem a bit wild, a bit random, a bit uncertain, but we can be confident that God is guiding history. He is controlling what takes place for his purposes, just as he did when he orchestrated the downfall of these six nations. Now, the important thing is, of course, We don't always know why. We don't get to see the details of God's plan. We don't often get to see behind the curtain to see what God is doing. When we hear of devastating situation, when there's personal tragedy, we don't very often get the why. But we are called to trust in God that he is in control of history today, just as in the past. Amos 1 is a fascinating passage and it's an interesting start to Amos as a message that's primarily against God's people Israel, and we will see that, I promise you, over the next six weeks, it begins firmly focused on nations that do not know the Lord. God is bringing justice against the nations for their crimes. And a lot of what we see in Amos is the same today, isn't it? God still abhors war and violence and treachery and slavery. God still judges people for sin and evil. God's standards are universal. And God is still in control of history, in control of the rise and fall of nations. A lot of what we see is the same today. But there's one point where I want to make just a slight distinction, which is of our experience from the nations. See, I think the impression we can get from a passage like this, and I'm aware it's a heavy passage, Amos chapter 1, is that things are hopeless. Things are hopeless. We all sin. We all fall short of God's call on our lives. It's unlikely to be war crimes for us. But we still all faced God's just punishment. I think the hardest part of Amos is those four words that we read six times. For the sins of the nations, God says, I will not relent. I will not relent. God says, That's it. They've sinned, punishment's coming. And and this was true for these nations. Punishment, just punishment, was on its way. Let me be clear, for us today, things are not why it's so bleak. Make no mistake, we are still sinners. We still disobey God and reject God. And our sin and disobedience still deserves God's punishment. But God provides a way. He provides a way for us to avoid his just judgment. In fact, and this came out actually in the kids talk, God is the way. God is the way to avoid just judgment. And the person of Jesus, God comes to earth to all, all of us and all people who face his judgment for our evil and sin, Jesus says, I see that you're guilty, but I will take that punishment on myself so that you don't have to. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, my life is a ransom. It is the price that's being paid to set someone else free so jesus gives his life on the cross as payment for our sin the payment the just punishment we deserved so that if we trust in jesus we can avoid this punishment we can be forgiven we can be given a clean slate we can be friends with god again back in amos 1 god says to these particular nations i will not relent and that's fair enough too isn't it just punishment is coming The incredible thing is that for us, amazingly, if we trust in Jesus, God will relent. God will allow his punishment to fall on his own beloved son and not on us. That is the good news. And I think passages like Amos 1, as heavy as they are, we're committed to working through the word of God here, but it's heavy. But I think there is also a wonderful reminder in Amos 1 of the the seriousness of sin and disobeying God and the preciousness of the good news that we have, the preciousness of the gospel that we do not need to experience God's just judgment. I hope this gives us today greater thankfulness and gratitude for what God's done for us in Jesus, that we do not need to experience the judgment that we deserve. Let me, uh, let me close in prayer. Lord God, I thank you today for your servant Amos, this shepherd uh, and vineyard worker who was called by you to be a spokesperson to the nation of Israel and took up this call, Lord, and declared your word to them. Lord, as we work through Amos, I pray that you would give us ears to hear the words of Amos and to understand what it means for us. Lord, as we reflect on Amos 1, Lord, it's heavy. It's hard to not be struck by the heaviness of your judgment for what these nations have done. And Lord, particularly that you will not relent, that you have decreed that judgment and you would shortly bring it about. But Lord, I thank you that even as we also stand under your just judgment, we can have confidence in your love and your mercy towards us that you do relent. Lord, you allow the punishment we deserve to fall on Jesus as he dies on the cross for our sake, in our place, taking on himself the just judgment that we deserve. Lord, we are so grateful for the way that you have provided for us. And I pray, Lord, that today, even as the words of Amos ring in our ears, that we would have gratitude and thankfulness at the wonderful blessing this is. In Jesus' name, amen. To finish, we're going to sing a song. It's going to help us just a bit more reflect on the way